Hello and welcome to another episode of the Deaf Thing Podcast with you, your hosts, Nicola and Sean. And guess what? Today is our 50th episode. Boom, 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 boom. And for this 50th episode, we figured, you know, we should do something special. And indeed, we did. And not, you know, honestly, when I was talking to Sean, you know, let's do, you know, something special like something that we usually don't do. But what he actually ended up doing was so freaking amazing. I was like, what the hell? Like, awesome. That's great. And so this awesome news is, Sean, what? Well, um, Nicola has a habit. If anyone's heard more than probably two episodes of this podcast, they know of referring to James Clear every episode, referring to one of his articles, reading through it, using it in the links episode. He's a huge fan of James Clear. And so, right you are. as a special surprise for Nicola, I arranged to have an interview on the podcast with James Clear himself and surprise Nicola with that. So we recorded that a couple days ago and we're going to inject it in here after we introduce it here. And I think everyone's really going to get a lot out of it. Exactly. All right. Anything else before we start the interview? Nope. Let's do it. You guys right. love it. And James is awesome. All right, everybody. Here's the interview with James Clear. All right. Uh, we have a special guest with us today, Mr. James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits and many, many articles that we talk about on the show all the time. Hi, James. Hey, great to talk to both of you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to be on. Uh, Nicola has been a fan for many, many years. He's He's vibrating in his seat. So excited. To, uh, yeah, m- talk to you. Exactly. My voice will be shaking all like this whole recording because I'm like, <laughs> I'm finally meeting my, you know, one of my role models. So, you know, glad to have you. Super excited. Yeah. So, um, we've kind of introduced ourselves offline. So, you know, that we're, uh, programming programmers and programmer leads. And we like to do this podcast to try to help people expand their horizons, both within our company and the general public at large. So, um, a lot of the things you do, as obviously by the title of the book, has to do with habits, developing and uh, maintaining them, which seems to be a really hard thing to get started. So first question is, everyone knows what they're supposed to do. I'm supposed to get up early. I'm supposed to go to the gym. I'm supposed to eat vegetables. But how do you get started in a way that makes you not stop after the first three days? Hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, there's a lot to talk about with habits. I think a good way to, if I'm going to recommend, like, what's a good way to get started? What's the the first thing that you should do? Um, I like to talk about what I call the two minute rule. Uh, and so basic idea is you take whatever habit you're trying to build and you downscale it to just the first two minutes. So, um, read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat or, you know, go for a run, uh, after work every day becomes put on my running shoes. And, uh, you, it's not that you're trying to not be ambitious. It's just that you're trying to make it easy to do the things that pay off in the long run. Um, and so, 
one of my favorite stories about this, I have a, a reader who he ended up losing over 100 pounds. And one of the first things he did was he went to the gym, but he wouldn't allow himself to stay for longer than five minutes. So it was like so weird, a complete reverse of what you would expect people to do. Right. So he would go to the gym, drive, show up, do like half an exercise, get in the car, drive back home. And it sounds funny to people because they're like, well, that's, you know, that's not going to get the result that he wants. But in the beginning, it's often not about the result. It's about like becoming the type of person who shows up every day, uh, becoming the type of person who uh, masters the art of showing up. And so once he did that, then he had a lot of options for improving, right? Then he had choices for how he could, where he could focus and optimize. And I think that that's a key lesson about habits, which is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. So often we're focused on finding the perfect diet plan or the best business idea or the right workout program. And we optimize for like this finish line for this outcome that we want. But I think it's more effective to optimize for the starting line, make it as easy as possible to become the type of person that shows up each day. And then you can go and optimize and improve from there. Awesome. That's great because what happened to me like multiple times, I would set a certain goal. I don't know, for example, run 5k under 30 minutes, right? And I would reach that goal and then it's done. Like, okay, I'm done. I don't have it like any goal and I don't want to go further. However, if I got this right, if instead in the process, I would have become a runner, it would be normal for me to just continue. And as a side effect, I would run, come to run, you know, 10k, half a marathon, Maybe, you know, God knows someday a marathon, right? Right. So this is, uh, this connects with an idea that I talk about in the book that I refer to as identity based habits. But the, the basic idea is whenever we set goals for ourselves, we often make it about the result. And it's not that results are bad or that outcomes should be avoided. I mean, I want good results too. It's just that the real thing to focus on, the real goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The real goal is not to like write a book. It's to become a writer. And once you have developed that identity, once you see yourself as that type of person, in a sense, true behavior change is like identity change. You know, you're not even, once you believe that that's who you are, you're not even really trying to pursue behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person you already believe yourself to be. And this ties back with what we just talked about a moment ago with this two-minute rule and small habits and so on, which is that your habits are kind of the way that you embody a particular identity, you know? So like, Every morning when you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. And whenever you write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. If you go to uh, the gym, you embody the identity of someone who is fit. And it's not really that any all instances in life, all experiences, they shape they shape your identity in some way. But it's not really about the um, any individual instance, your habits are repeated. And so they kind of, it's almost like every action you take casts a vote for the type of person that you believe that you are. And as you keep repeating these votes, keep casting votes for being a runner or being a writer or being uh, a programmer or whatever it is, eventually you have like this little mountain of evidence, right? Like this is who I am. And now you actually have an evidence to root your identity and to like base the belief on. And so I think that this comes back again to the the point of like, what is the usefulness of small habits? What is the usefulness of going to the gym for five minutes or of writing one sentence? And it's not that it will automatically deliver the result that you want, but it does cast a vote for your desired identity. Um, you know, like you could say, 
my kids are sick. It's been a really crazy day. I was exhausted after I got back from work. I didn't have much time, and all I could do was write one sentence before I collapsed on the bed and went to sleep. But at least I'm the type of person who writes every day. And in the long run, that can count for a lot. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people do the opposite of that without realizing it. I was tired this morning, so I didn't go to the gym, so I'm kind of a failure. And I went to McDonald's instead of having a salad for lunch, so I'm kind of a failure. And they stack those up, so when they think about the kind of person that goes to the gym and eats healthy, they've voted enough votes that that's not not them, so why try? Yeah, I think that's a powerful point. You know, like it's it seems... It's interesting because any of those actions by themselves are also small, right? Like, I mean, going through the McDonald's drive-thru and getting a, you know, a McMuffin or something is like, that's not a big action. But we, we use that as a vote for the type of person that we are. And so if you can start to invert that and use some of the small actions to, and uh, do it in a positive way, then the same thing happens and you start to accumulate evidence of, of your desired identity rather than an unwanted one. Excellent. So... You, you write about habits, you deal with habits. Obviously, I'm assuming that you're, you practice these habits in preparation for writing about them. You want to embody them and figure out how useful they are for your readers. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that not all of them are things that you find useful to carry on. So are there any habits that you still do daily? And I'm thinking about things like the Ivy Lee method, the Seinfeld method, the things that you've discussed. Yeah. Have, have you just absorbed them and they're just the person you kind of are and you no longer think that you do them, but you actually do? Yeah, well, some of them, so like the Ivy League method, just I think that's a great one uh, as an example. Um, just to get everybody on the same page, uh, so Ivy League method is like a productivity method, and basically the day before, you write down your like six most important tasks. There's nothing magical about the number six, but that's what the method recommends. Um, and then you prioritize them based on the order of their true importance, and then you work on the most important thing first, and then once you finish that, you move on to the second, and so on. And uh, if there's anything left over at the end of the day, you move that over to your list for the next day and do the same thing again. And the idea is you're supposed to keep yourself focused on what the most important thing is. So um, some of these I still do in the way that you would expect. And other ones I uh, do them in like it's taken on a different form. So, for example, Ivy Lee method. The basic idea behind this is are you working on the most important thing? Are you prioritizing your tasks? So the answer to do I do that is yes. The answer to do I do the Ivy Lee method itself is no. And part of that has changed because now I have a team. And some of the projects have expanded, and so it's not just me that we're considering anymore. We're considering what everybody's working on in the business. And so um, we have started to use Trello and Asana to prioritize those tasks, divide them. A lot of the time now the thinking is even longer term than just like what do we do tomorrow. It's like... For example, we just launched this book, so we, we've been thinking about that for like nine months now. Okay, the book's going to come out on this date. What do we need to get done this month? What's prioritized for the next month? And so on. And then we basically back into those daily priorities based on like the long-term trajectory. So it's a little bit uh, more complex, but the same idea of like prioritizing the task and working on the most important thing at the time, that still is front and center. For the Seinfeld strategy, that's really just about tracking your habits, you know, like put an X on the calendar for each day that you do that habit or whatever. And I, I talk about this in Atomic Habits a little bit. I talk about this in the book that measurement is useful, but it's not necessary for all habits. And so I kind of put habits into like two different categories. So the first category are, well, I guess we could just call like life fundamentals, like 
flossing or, you know, unplugging the toaster after each time you use it or tying your shoes or like a bunch of other stuff that we just do kind of automatically. And um, flossing is fine. Flossing is an important thing to do. But I don't need a process of like measurement and continuous improvement for that. You know, like I, I don't need to continually think about how to improve my flossing technique or something. So for those, I just look for ways to like design the environment, get the habit established and then move on. But then there's a second category of habits. And these are the things that like maybe this is actually really important to me and I do want to track it and I do want to improve it. And um, for that category, measurement is helpful. And so methods like the Seinfeld strategy, I still use that for my workouts. Um, now, often it's more than just putting an X on the calendar. I record not only the date, but also like my body weight that day and the sets and reps that I did. But I, I use that idea of like, let me track each instance of the habit. Um, but I only do that for things like working out, which is really important to me, and not for things like flossing or, you know, other stuff. Cool. Awesome. So, you know, I'm wondering, so both Sean and I are, you know, leading our teams and, you know, we do our best. However, I'm really curious, what do you think? So, you know, we are in this quote unquote personal development path, blah, 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 reading books, trying out stuff. And I'm really wondering, uh, what would you say, what would the best, you know, best bang for the buck? So basically Pareto applied here in order to get our teams excited, you know, to maybe try it out. And not just this it away as, you know, you guys are trying this some new age stuff, you know, just, you know, go away. So mm. how do we how do we try to not be too offensive, basically, but either way, still try to, you know, show them, quote unquote, show them the light, show them that really you don't have to change overnight because we all know that's not going to work. We all know that, you know, New Year's resolutions just do not work because, hey, I'm going to start running every day for 5K every, like, you know, uh, morning at 5 a.m. Oh, and starting this Monday, that just doesn't work. So, you know, that 1% change, well, you know, how do we kind of like start it? What would you say? So uh, I'll come back to answer your question, but before I do, I want to give an example. Um you can basically, the way that I like to phrase this is that um, perceived value motivates you to act. Actual value motivates you to repeat something. And what I mean by that is life often feels reactive. You know, it feels like somebody said something to me and then I feel a certain way or something happened and then I responded in a particular way. But in fact, life is actually more predictive than we uh, give it credit for. So, for example, if you go to Amazon to buy a book, and you go to that page, you, what you buy is actually not the book itself. You can't because you don't have the book yet. What you buy is the image that the sales page creates in your mind. You buy your expectation of how good the book is. In other words, it's the perceived value. It's your expectation of how valuable the book is that gets you to click the buy button and check out. It's only a few days later when the book arrives in the mail that you can open it up, actually consume it, and then decide, is the actual value good enough for me to recommend it to a friend or so on? Now, when it comes to, so that's like a deeper lesson about what motivates us to take any action. It's when we perceive that the value of that action is high enough to be worth the energy of doing that thing. So when we perceive that the value is high enough of the book to spend $15, we press the buy button and check out. When we perceive that the value of eating a cookie on the plate of cookies on the counter in the kitchen is tasty enough to warrant standing up and walking over to get one, we walk over and stand up to get one. But it's actually your expectation that is what leads to the, the motivation to take action. So let's bring this back to your question. How do we motivate our teams 
to focus on these things to feel like it's worthwhile and so on? And the answer is what's going to make your team feel motivated, what's going to make anybody feel motivated is the same thing that we just said. It's perceived value. And so one of the best ways to do that is to highlight why this exercise, why this particular technique is valuable to them. It doesn't mean that you're guaranteeing it's going to get a particular result, but basically show them the logic behind the method. Show them the value behind the method rather than just saying, um, you know, mercury is in retrograde and that means that we shouldn't do a particular thing or whatever. Right. Like you're you're trying to showcase how that's going to lead them down the right path. Um, and so by doing that, the more explicit you can make the promise that's wrapped up in that technique, the more likely they are to be motivated to do it. And this comes back to a variety of things that you hear a lot, right? Like make it personal, show how it ties into their job or their objectives or their goals, right? So that like showcases why the perceived value would be higher to them. Or, um, this is what all good, like copywriting and marketing is about. You know, the copy is really about getting you to see the value of the product. Any great sales page is about creating an image in your mind that showcases how valuable it's going to be. So the the lesson here, the short punchline is all behavior is motivated by perceived value rather than actual value. And if you want people to feel more motivated, you need to show them how that value ties into to what they want. You need to create like a vivid image in their mind of why this technique would be useful. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, like, as I mentioned a couple of times, we're knowledge workers. Um, your habits obviously apply, well, not your habits, but you know, the habits you describe are useful for anybody. Is there any kind of bent you can put on it that maybe it's more applicable or certain subset of them are more applicable to knowledge workers, specifically IT professionals in particular? Yeah. So, uh, there, I think there are like two ways to approach that question. So the first is like for any knowledge worker, you need to, to do good knowledge work, you need energy and you need focus. And so what are habits that lead to uh, a good amount of energy? Well, things like getting eight hours of sleep a night or eating uh, reasonably healthy or uh, moving your body and exercising so that you're, you know, in like a fairly fresh state, going for a daily walk, things like that. And those are not uh, those particular ones are not unique to knowledge workers, but they will lead to increased productivity and just like generally feeling better and being more likely to bring your best self to work each day. So energy is crucial. And any habit that leads to better energy is probably going to lead to better knowledge work. Um, the second area, though, which I do think is perhaps a little more unique uh, or targeted to knowledge work is focus. And you hear about this a lot with programming that, you know, like if you interrupt somebody every 20 minutes, uh, even if it's only for 20 seconds, it's not like they just get that 20 minutes back. Right. It takes a while to get into there's like this on ramp uh, to get back into the work. So you're really costing them much more than just that 20 second interruption. So. Uh, some habits, like for example, I, you know, I'm not a programmer, but I do knowledge work as well because I'm writing articles and so on. So one habit that I found very useful recently is I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And that gives me just like three to four hours in the morning where I don't have my phone anywhere around me. And what's interesting about that is that if I, if I have my phone on me, if it's at, if it's at the desk with me, I'm like everybody else. I'll check it every three minutes, right? I'll just look at it because it's there. Uh, as soon as I get like a hint of boredom, I pick it up and check. But I have a home office, and so when I leave my phone out of the room, it's really not that far away. It's like 45 seconds up the stairs. But I never go up to get it. 
And so my question to myself is, well, did I want it or not? Because like in a sense, I wanted it. I checked it a hundred times when it was right next to me. But in another sense, I never wanted it bad enough to go check it uh, after like to put in 45 seconds of work. Um, and so I think that you find that, especially for people who spend a lot of time on the computer, because uh, the smartphone is just an example of a habit that is so convenient, so frictionless that I'll pick it up a hundred times if it's next to me. But I didn't actually have some deeper burning desire to go look at it if it requires a little bit of work. Well, that's doubly true of things like checking Twitter. All you have to do is just a couple keystrokes and open up a new tab, right? It's like so frictionless, so easy that you do it, even though you don't really want to do it in like a deep sense. Um, and so I think for habits that apply to knowledge workers and building a lot of focus, it really comes down to creating either roadblocks or environment design, like leaving your phone in another room, uh, to increase the friction of those convenient, super easy tasks so that you can stay on track. Because a lot of the time when I check my phone and it's right next to me, it's not actually that I need to check. I just had like 10 seconds of boredom, right? And then like if I were to sit with it, it would just float away. And then 20 seconds later, I'd get back to the sentence I was working on. Um, but because I have something to distract me, that 10 seconds turns into something much more. And I open up my phone and then I've been on Instagram for 20 minutes and whatever. So um, I think that's more about like a design issue and making those little points of uh, interruption, adding friction to that. And, uh, and structuring your digital and physical environment to make focus more likely. Yeah, that's a really cool answer and went a completely different angle than I was expecting. I was thinking you were like, oh, yeah, these four habits might help you, but you really went uh, more fundamental, which is awesome, which it kind of brought up an apparent contradiction in uh, a couple of things you said. So on the one hand, you're saying habits are about becoming the type of person who does the thing. You become the writer. You become you know, the, the fitness person. And then you just said you, Mr. James Clear himself, uh, will put the phone in another room, just like the person trying to lose weight just won't buy cookies to have them in the kitchen. So on the one hand, you're the kind of person that just doesn't binge on cookies, but you're saying you still don't buy the cookies. So kind of feels like a contradiction, but I'm just curious how you uh, remedy that in your mind. Yeah, it's a brilliant question. So um Humans come outfitted with this set of primal drives, right? And like some of these primal drives are we need to eat and we need to sleep and we need to drink things. And some of them are things like, you know, we want to belong to the tribe. Uh, we want to fit in. We want to um, be entertained when we have a feeling of boredom, things like that. And everybody, myself, you all, I mean, we all have this to some degree. And so in a sense, we're looking as we go through our day, we're looking for ways to satisfy those primal drives, those cravings and urges. And if you have an easy solution in front of you, like I need to eat and hey, there happens to be an awesome package of like Doritos over there, then I'll just go ahead and grab that because that's the easy thing. It's certainly much easier than spending 20 minutes to cook lunch, right? Or to make a salad or something like that. But if you remove those options, you still have that drive that you need to satisfy. And if the easiest solution in your environment is, I got to spend 10 minutes making a salad, then you go ahead and opt for that solution instead. And the way that I would uh, describe this is that um, you, you want to design an environment where it's easy to do the thing that pays off in the long run, where it's easy to do the thing that serves you well. Uh, and so often we are in an environment where it's easier to do things that don't serve our long-term needs. And part of this is just because we inherit a world that is designed by other people without you necessarily in mind, 
You know, like the people who designed your smartphone or who designed the Facebook app or whatever, they have other motives. They have other things that they're trying to do, too. And sometimes your habits and goals and theirs come into conflict. And so if you don't design that pack, that uh, environment, both digitally and physically, in a careful way, it's easy to get nudged in the wrong direction or in an in unproductive direction. And uh, also, I'll say, I mentioned this, I talk about it more in Chapter 7 of the book, but... Self-control and willpower, like saying, like, oh, I'm James Clear. I'll just resist eating, you know, cookies and Doritos and whatever. Um, that might be a short-term strategy, but it's not a good long-term strategy. Uh, you might be able to resist the pull of temptation once or twice or for a week even. But in the long run, I've almost never seen someone reliably stick to good behaviors in a bad environment or stick to positive behaviors in a negative environment. It's just really hard to resist the pull of what engulfs us. And so uh, structuring an environment that serves you is a much better long-term strategy than saying, just have more willpower, try harder, you need grit and perseverance, whatever. Some of those qualities are bad. It's just that the best way to develop them is by designing an environment that requires less willpower. Awesome. So this also basically ties in with the fact that, uh, I mean, that the quote that Jim Ron said, you know, you are basically an average of five people that you spend the most time with, right? Mm. So, yeah, interesting. That uh, quote is, um, I, I think it's a good example of this, and we haven't even really talked about the social environment. We've been talking mostly about, like, at the actual physical environment, right? But um, the social environment weighs heavily on us all. It shapes a lot of our habits. You know, there are things like, just take simple things you don't even think about. Like, you step onto the elevator, and you turn around to face the front. Or when you have a job interview, you wear, like, a suit and a tie or a dress or something nice. Like, there's no reason that you have to do those things, right? You could face the back of the elevator or you could wear a bathing suit to a job interview. But you don't do that stuff because it violates the shared expectations of that group, of that tribe. It violates, like, the social norms of that particular uh, group. And we all are part of multiple tribes, Like, some of them are large, like what it means to be American or what it means to be Croatian or whatever. Some of them are small, like what it means to be a member of your local gym or a member of uh, the volunteers who are at your school or, um, you know, a neighbor on your street. But all of those tribes, large and small, have a set of shared expectations, a set of social norms. You know, it's, it could be like, hey, everybody who lives on the street, they put their recycling out on Wednesday night. And that's like an expectation. Um And so in many cases, your habits follow the norms and expectations of the groups that you're in. And so that Jim Rohn quote about you are the average of the five people that you spend time with, that's not just about like the ideas that they put out. It's also about like what is your most – what is the tribe that you spend most of your time in? What do they expect you to do? What do they expect you to act like? What type of a, a person do they expect you to be? And those expectations weigh heavily on us because when – Habits align with the expectations of the tribe. They're very attractive because doing them helps you fit in. And when habits conflict with the expectations of the tribe, they're very unattractive because doing so makes you stand out or be cast out. Um, and so that's why in the book I say you want to join a group where the desired behavior is the normal behavior. Exactly, because in a way they will also, I won't say push, but maybe nudge you towards where you want to go. And they're going to, you know, basically pull you to that where it's like peer pressure, you know, peer pressure can either work for you or against you. And you're just trying to uh, figure out a way so that it's a positive force rather than a negative one. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, as I said, like before the, we started recording, I was like, you know, I, I think I'm following you for like 
from the beginnings, like 2012. And I, I also listened to other podcasts that you did, you know, with other people. And I laughed because in one of the podcasts, I'm not sure maybe it was Noah Kagan who asked you that. I'm like, you know, he was like, uh, do people stop you in the airports? And the answer there was, you know, ah, uh, you know, maybe like one or two persons, you know, maybe. I'm really curious if this situation now changed because I mean, come on, anybody that's in, that's in, you know, these improvements kind of like on this improvement path, they must know about you because, you know, you're known. I, I would, I would <laughs> argue, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Um, I, I try not to put my picture out there that much. Like, I don't really have many photos on my website. There's just one page that has a picture of me. So like, it's kind of hard to find. Um, on social media, I don't really have my face as my profile. It's like a picture of me from very far away. It's just like a silhouette. So, um, I think, uh, I, my thought is I don't really care about myself being known. I want the ideas to be known, right? I want the ideas to like stand on their own and be as best as possible for the, ideas and insights to be famous, so to speak, because that means they're reaching more people and more people are finding them useful. And so I'm really more focused on pushing the ideas than on pushing my, I don't know, whatever, personal brand or something. Awesome. Yeah. I love it because like, honestly, uh, the way that you write, it's like, whoa, so this is so easy. And we all know it's not that easy, but you make it easy because you like decompose it into a, like an awesome example. Like the other day I read the blog post about, you know, uh, it started about, you know, uh, I think it was like Chinese railway. And I'm like, what that, you know, what do the, ch what does the Chinese railway had to do with all of this? And then you tie it all together in the end. It's like, it's all clicks into place. It makes sense. So uh, honestly, I love it. Oh, thank you so much. I love doing stuff like that, pulling like a story that doesn't seem like it's going to connect. And then, um, yeah, like using that as an example for a larger principle. But anyway, yeah, thank you for reading. Yeah, definitely. And for those who maybe need a tiny little nudge, further to want to read this book. That is one of the things about my opinion that makes your writing so valuable to me is a lot of the times you write about something and it's not something I don't know or haven't already heard of. It's a, it's kind of a basic idea. That's really simple, but the way you explain it, it just makes it accessible. It mm. makes you, makes me think I can do it as opposed to just being aware of it's the kind of thing I probably should be doing, but I'm kind of falling short. Yeah, thank you. That's uh I feel like that's an important part of the process is to you know, like I try to view myself as like a bridge between what's the scientific research say, what's the evidence say, and then how do I actually apply this in daily life? And sometimes it's the story and the framing that it's not it's not that I'm the first person to come up with the idea, it's just like putting it in the right frame. Yeah, it's it's definitely effective. And speaking of putting yourself out there uh in idea form rather than visual form, you actually stepped up and recorded your own audiobook which I'm very interested in podcasting and audiobook production and recording in general. So maybe this is more for me than the actual audience, but is there anything interesting you can tell us about the process of recording an audiobook? Oh, I loved it. It was, it was really fun. Um, I knew that I wanted to read it from the beginning. Like we negotiated that into my contract, but when we signed the book deal itself, um, but, uh, I was able to do it at a professional studio, uh, really cool details about the studio. So the, the room that I filmed it in or recorded it in, 
um, none of the walls actually touched the outside walls of the building. So it was like a room within a room, right, where there's like a buffer of air between the recording room and, and, every, and the actual building itself. Um, the ceiling was suspended from like springs so that, uh, the ceiling panels would actually not like reverberate and weren't connected to the floor above and so on. Um, so everything in the room was, was designed to deafen the sound, uh, and make it like ideal for a recording studio. They, um, the, the walls were actually like kind of this half dome shape. Uh, it was like a series of like scallops across the wall of like, um, uh, these like little curves that were maybe like one foot each. And so anyway, the, it gave the call the wall this like very curved shape, but the point was to not have any standing waves in the room. So there were no, there were actually no parallel walls, um, because it was just like this series of rounded, um, rounded edges. So, uh, that was neat. Anyway, so I enjoyed hearing about how the room was designed. The sound quality obviously was great. I hope that my reading of it was great. So far, the the reviews on Audible have been um, very positive, so that's good. Um, speed was an interesting one. Like I had to, I tend to talk a little bit faster. And when I was reading the book, you know, I'd I had read and written the book. Like you know, I'd gone through dozens and dozens of drafts, so I knew it very well at that point. So my tendency was to read too fast. So we actually, we had to reshoot the whole first chapter because I, I, that was basically just a testing ground for me to learn how to slow down and hit the right, the right pace. Um, but yeah, I'm really happy with the final product, both of the written book and the audio book. And it was, uh, it was cool to be able to do them both myself. That's really cool. Thanks for uh, sharing that. All right, awesome. Nicola. So I actually have a totally unrelated question, which I actually ask on all of my interviews that I do. It is, uh, what's your favorite fiction book? Mm. And again, uh, well, I, I mean, guess, of course, you would have like more of them, but I'm really curious, like almost always one or two literally spring, you know, to mind. So I'm really curious. What would you say? Yeah, well, the first one that jumped to my mind was Harry Potter. I mean, it's going to be the answer of like a million people, but that was, that series was like my childhood and teenage years. And I just like, I'd never burned through 700 pages that fast. So, um, that was, that's definitely the answer that sprung to mind immediately. Uh, the Hardy Boys series was like a really big part of my, uh, earlier childhood, like from eight to 12 or something like that. I read a ton of those books as well. Um, but I also, just as a little note, so, you know, I've been working on this book now for three years, uh, and I was writing about habits for three years before that. So I have not read very much fiction in the last six years. And so I picked up both Dark Matter and Ready Player One. Uh, and so I'm like, I have them both sitting there ready to read after I finish the book launch. And uh, so those are kind of like the next ones that are in my queue. Awesome. Ready Player One is awesome. Yes. Nice. Yeah, I'm excited. Since you said, you know, uh, Harry Potter... Did you maybe hear about the book called The Name uh, of the Wind? The Name of the Wind? Yeah, Patrick Rothfuss. Yes, actually, and I bought that as well. That's with Ready Player One and uh, Dark Matter. I heard that that's really good. That's, look, look, I got, like, goosebumps. You have goosebumps right now. (laughs) It's crazy. The book is so good, it's unbelievable. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm really excited to read those. I am. Oh, and then, of course, like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, I've read those. I mean, the, those are fantastic. Game of Thrones is one of those rare books that is all, almost equally as good as a show. Um, Lord of the Rings is really hard because it's 
the, the movies are great, but it's just three movies and it's nine hours long. Well, I don't know how many hours of Game of Thrones footage there is now, but it's, you know, the TV show. It's got to be 50, 60 hours long at this point, maybe more. So when you have that much re- time to tell the story, it allows you to get into depth that's just really hard to do in a movie. Um, and there are still, like, some complications because Game of Thrones has so many characters that sometimes I think if you only watch the show, that might be a little confusing, whereas you get that backstory in the book. But uh, but it does make a really fantastic TV show, whereas most of the time the book is better. Yeah, awesome. well, we could do book versus movie for, like, another hour. But uh, we are running close to the end of our time, so uh, this is your floor. If there's anything we didn't ask you, if there's anything you wanted to uh, mention, uh Please uh, share. Well, so one thing we didn't talk about is in the book I refer to as the fourth law of behavior change. And the basic idea is your habits need to be satisfying for you to want to repeat them. Um, and so some of my favorite examples of this come from the world of like product design and business. So uh, a classic example is toothpaste. Um, the toothpaste does not need to taste minty uh, to be effective. It doesn't. The mint flavor does not make it clean your teeth any better. Um, but it would not taste very good to just put like a bland paste on your on your teeth. And so the mint flavor delivers this like reflect, refreshing, clean mouth feel. And that satisfaction that comes after brushing your teeth makes it more likely that you're going to repeat it again in the future. As a more modern example, a couple years ago, BMW added this feature to one of their cars where if you really slammed on the accelerator, if you really pressed on the gas, they would pump additional engine growl through the speakers of the, the car. So it was like more satisfying to, to press the gas. And this is something that I refer to as the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that are immediately rewarded get repeated. Behaviors that are immediately punished get avoided. And it's really, it does matter if it's satisfying or not, but it's really about the speed. It's about how quickly do you feel successful doing a particular action. And so the more immediate the feedback, the more likely you are to perform that action again in the future. And this is one reason why video games are so addictive or so, um, you know, consuming because there is always, there are always these elements of immediate feedback. So you've got like your score in the top corner and, you know, every time you pick up rubies or coins or weapons or whatever, your score is increasing. So you're getting immediate feedback that you're making progress. Whenever you grab one of those rubies or weapons or whatever, there's a little like jingle or sound or music and that's feedback. Even the like pitter patter of steps on the ground as you're advancing through the level is feedback that you're making progress. And so video games allow you to get this like optimal form of immediate feedback and feel like you're always progressing. And as a result, you're always motivated to keep continue playing in the in the real world. It's a little bit harder to do that with your habits. It's a little bit harder to have like that instant immediate feedback continuously. But there are some ways to do it. Uh, so, you know, you can have like external reinforcers. Uh, they may not be immediate. They tend to be more effective when they are. But like. We go to work and then we get a paycheck in two weeks. And that's uh, a form of external reinforcement that says, hey, this felt good to go to work. I got paid, so I should come back again next week. Um, and if you uh, if you can increase the speed of those external reinforcers, so like um, every time you go to the gym, you take a bubble bath when you get back as, as a reward. Uh, and so like that's like, oh, this feels nice to do this. And it's also... The the caveat there is if you're going to use an external reinforcement, you want to make sure that it aligns with your desired identity and does not conflict with it. 
right? So like if your reward for going to the gym is I get to eat a bowl of ice cream, then you're kind of like casting a vote for being a healthy person on one side and then for being an unhealthy one on the other and it's sort of like a wash. But if you take a bubble bath, then both of those are kind of like a vote for taking care of your body. Um, and so you're kind of aligned with the general identity you're looking to build. So uh, that's a way for external reinforcement to kind of deliver that immediate feedback and satisfaction. And then the ultimate form of this is reinforcement of your desired identity, right? So like I mentioned, you know, like for me, working out is a key part of my identity. So whenever I go to the gym, as long as I do one rep, I can feel like, hey, I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts or I'm, you know, I'm reinforcing being a person who's fit. And that allows you to have satisfaction right then in the moment. Now, it takes a little while to develop that. I don't think you can just flip a switch and, hey, magically, uh, you know, this is working right away. But uh, but if you can use, like, the external reinforcer to kind of get you through that valley of death in the beginning and keep putting in the reps, and then maybe two or three or four months later, then you start to see yourself as that kind of person. And now you're showing up just because, hey, this is who I am and it feels good to be me and not because uh, I'm only doing this for some kind of external reward. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. Uh, obviously, jamesclear.com is the site, and Atomic Habits is the book available on Amazons and other places. And anything else you want to promote, Twitter feed, Facebook, et cetera? No, no, yeah. If you just go to jamesclear.com, that'll, you can click on articles and I've got them kind of organized by category so you can poke around and see what's interesting to you. Um, social links are on there. And, uh, if you want to go specifically to the book, then you can just check out atomichabits.com. All right. Great. Thank you very much, James. Thank you. Really awesome. appreciate it. Thank All you. Right. All right, everybody. That was our interview with James Clear. Uh, Nicola is still struck speechless at this moment, just recalling. Exactly the awesomeness of what it was. So I got a lot out of it. Um, did you, I mean, you followed him, you've bought the book, you've read his articles. Were, were there new details or new nuances that you were able to pick up from that interview? Yes, that he likes Harry Potter and that's awesome. And that he's now most probably going to uh, read The Name of the Wind and I'm sure he's going to love it. And those of you, dear listeners, who haven't read that book, go check it out. It's really great. Right, right after Atomic Habits, of course. Of course. All right, everybody, that's our long episode for today. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the DevThink Podcast. You can contact us at info at DevThink. That's D-E-V-T-H dot I-N-K. Now, go accomplish something.